This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Greetings, my dear Life Worlds friends. I hope this finds you well. Some of you who listened to the previous episodes might identify the acoustic landscape I currently find myself in, which means that yes, I am back in the laundry cupboard in Mexico. And as I gaze at the door, someone baffled might come in and wonder what I'm doing, but I digress. Today's episode is such a wonderful one. We are going to be talking about conservation photography. Now, our guest... Here are some of the words that came to mind. Audacious, spunky, courageous, defiant, sensitive, compassionate, and fierce. These are the energies that I feel radiating from the formidable spirit and woman that is Christina Mitty Mittemeyer. Hailed as one of the most influential conservation photographers of our time, this Mexican national has dedicated her entire life to protecting the world's oceans and through her work and her art, has inspired millions of people to do the same. Christina was one of the first pioneers in the concept and field of conservation photography, a kind of career, as you will hear in this episode, that is quite different to other kinds of photography. Once told to sit down and be quiet when she asked at a conference early on in her career how photography could be used on behalf of advocacy for the world's last wild places, Christina now has millions of followers who are drawn to the stunning and strategic communications of her nonprofit organization, Sea Legacy, which she founded with her husband, Paul Nicklin, all of which sit at the intersection of art, science, and conservation. Christina's work has been published in hundreds of prominent magazines, including, of course, National Geographic. You will likely have seen her images if you go and check out her Instagram after this. They've been front cover and center in many global campaigns and just span such a vast range of human and natural biocultural diversity. Christina and Paul use this platform, Sea Legacy, for other photographers, storytellers, ambassadors, and local communities who are all doing critical conservation work in order to help them get their story out into the world. And so in that way, She is also an amplifier of the world's most far-flung voices and the ocean's precious inhabitants. I was very curious to ask Christina what it is about photography that she claims lowers the barrier of entry for people to engage with tricky conversations around nature and climate. And with that photography, should she, should we, be pushing out pictures showing the majesty of nature? Or should conservation photographers also run a whole gamut of realistic but possibly emotionally distressing content? We discussed this today 
and it's a fine line and a delicate balance to tread in telling it as it is, whilst infusing hope in others, whilst not wearing oneself down in anger and despair as we do so. We also speak about common myths or misperceptions that exist around the ocean, as well as speculate on the creation of blue economies, what justice can look like for coastal communities, and how the world might be able to understand or comprehend the immense value of these blue ecosystems, blue natural capital ecosystems, if we use that economic language, and how we might even be able to enter them into the profit and loss of a country. Now, as a photographer myself, although calling myself a photographer in this context gives me a little bit of imposter syndrome, and I can't even begin to say that I've been in 2% of the kinds of situations that Christina has placed herself in, like swimming in bone-chilling subarctic temperatures or inside of spirals of circling white sharks. But as a photographer, an aspiring amateur photographer, I often wonder about the kinds of stories and images that can change the world and that can also convey the innermost sanctums of the life worlds of some creatures we may never meet in our lifetimes. I'd be curious to hear from you, what picture have you seen that you've never been able to unsee? What spurred you into action or reaction? What made you feel courageous to take a stand? Because, as Christina tells us in this episode, Susan Sontag, in the 1970s, was writing about the courage it takes to see the pain of others and the importance of photographers in the front lines to prevent us from numbing ourselves to the horrors of war. The war on biodiversity is no different. Somebody needs to be in the front lines to remind us of what's being lost. And if we don't have the courage to look it in the eye, then we cannot solve it. Well, we're about to speak with a woman who has an immense amount of courage and creativity. So without further ado, over to Christina. Christina, hello and welcome to Life Worlds. How are you doing today? Good morning. Good morning, Alexa. I'm doing great. It's such a beautiful day and thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And for our listeners, I have to give a little disclaimer that Christina and I just had a wonderful one-hour conversation before this episode about her work with Sea Legacy and, and all that they're doing. So we're both coming warmed up and prepared for this conversation. But actually, Christine, I don't think I've, I've warmed you up for this first question, which is something I don't ask to everyone on the show, but I do love to ask it when there's artists or creatives. Is there somewhere that you've been traveling to lately for your work or otherwise, somewhere recent that you've been to in the world that's really present in your soul, in your imagination? And would you be able to speak to us from the perspective of that ecosystem? If it could be here with us right now in this room, what would it say, or in this room, in this virtual space, I guess, what would this place say? Maybe there's somewhere very recent that you would be compelled to speak on behalf of. Well, let me take you on a little journey, Alexa. We had the opportunity recently of spending time underwater with southern right whales in southwestern Australia. So a couple of things to know about this place is that the water is very cold. This has a very big subantarctic influence. And the other part of it is that there's a lot of great white sharks. So getting in the water is, you know, overwhelming just in it on itself. But we were filming these incredible creatures, the southern right whales. And I have spent a lot of time with many whales in many parts of the world, but never with a creature like this. 
it totally took my breath away because first of all, they look so strange. They have this massive head with these callosities on that are used for ramming each other. And you get a sense when you meet these animals underwater, mostly mothers and calves, that they really are wild whales. You know, they make a migration from Antarctica crossing the Drake Passage back to these waters full of sharks in the coast of Australia. And they don't get to see a lot of humans. So they come and meet you with genuine curiosity. You know, I've never had a whale do this where you just have to sit still and it'll come and check you out two or three times. And then eventually it'll try to touch you with those callosities. And it is terrifying. (laughs) So I was in the water with this mom and calf and I literally was running through my head the line of questions. Where have you been? Where did you come from? I mean, what kinds of things have you seen? Because such an amazing animal. If that whale could speak, what do you think it would say? Yeah, well, these whales, first of all, were hunted to near extinction. They're called the right whale because they were the right whale to kill. So we took the population from 100,000 to 300 whales. And they have made a recovery. There's about three to 4,000 now. And some of them can be as old as 200 years old. These animals are very old. So if this whale could speak to me, hopefully it would say, I remember what was done to my kind and I forgive you. And I hope you will do the right thing by us. It's just overwhelming to be in the water with an animal that's been around for so long. Wow. Literally with the elders of the earth. That's so deeply touching and yeah, you know, I, Christina, I love to ask this question to people like yourself because the way that you've been able to capture these moments with your lens points to your ability to place yourself in situations with your you know, mind, body, heart, and soul that must be quite unique and that you must have developed some very unique skills and capacities to be able to do this and to sort of see and sense the world in the way that you do. Something we talk about a lot on this podcast is what it means to see and sense the world with different senses in order to inhabit these life worlds of other beings. And in that, you are doing this through the role of a conservation photographer, which is, if I understand it correctly, a term that you kind of coined or penned back in the day. So before we get into the how, like how you actually do that, what's behind this term of being a conservation photographer and what is it to be this version of an artist? It's a great question, Alexa. You ask such good questions. Um, I remember a conversation I had in my early days at National Geographic where an editor confronted me and said, you know, you cannot take sides. You cannot be biased against the hunters or the whalers. And if you do that, then you're not a journalist because you have to keep up, you know, unbiased. And I remember thinking that's the silliest thing I've ever heard because these whales, these animals who are passengers with us on planet Earth, they don't have a PR agency. They don't have a lawyer to speak on their behalf. So if speaking for them and on their behalf makes me a non-journalist, so be it. I will be an activist instead. <laughs> And if being an activist makes me somebody who's willing to take action, then I'm happy to be that person because I don't want to be inactive. And so that was the day many years ago that I chose to wear the invisible suit that superheroes wear. You know, superheroes every day that one day wake up, just like you did, Alexa, to say, what's in my power 
to do on behalf of our beautiful planet. And I have just been doing it. And if the price to pay is the name, the recognition, the title, the money, I don't care. I'm wearing my superhero suit. I love that term. So would you say that a conservation photographer is more of an activist and more willing to pick a side versus another type of photographer? Yeah, you know, I remember when I was very young and starting to grow my career and I, I really honestly didn't know very much about photography. So I thought I wanted to be a nature photographer, wildlife. And so I started going to these conferences that were populated mostly by middle-aged white men. And they had big agendas, you know, they were selling cameras and filters and trips to remote places. <laughs> and every time I raised my hand, you know, I, I wanted to know, Alexa, can we use our photographs to shine a light and protect the places where we work? And I was in no uncertain terms told to shut up and sit down. This is not what we do here, little lady. So <laughs> I remember thinking there are some photographers out there that focus exclusively on telling nature stories. You know, there's a lady down the street and she uses her camera to photograph the hummingbirds in her feeder. She's called a nature photographer. But then there's photographers, somebody like Nick Nichols. He traveled 2,000 miles by foot from the highlands of Cameroon to the coast of Gabon, following the trails of forest elephants into places that no human had ever gone before. And he used his images to lobby the government of President Bongo for 13 new national parks. And he too is called a nature photographer. And I thought, well, there's a massive difference here. You know, <laughs> somebody who does this for the sake of taking pictures and somebody for whom the work begins the moment after he pushed the shutter. And then he has to put those images to work. And that's the real work. And that person is a conservation photographer. That's very interesting. You've written this in interviews or spoken this in interviews and briefly touched on it in our previous call before this. And you've said, you know, science can be confrontational, whereas photography doesn't place blame or guilt. There's a really interesting tension in this. So from what I understood, you actually started off as a scientist and you were writing papers on, you know, marine hotspots and biodiversity points that should be protected. And you realized that the science, and I understand this because I work in a science lab, like it could be quite dry and difficult for normal people to connect with. So what do you mean when you say that the science by itself can be confrontational? And then you've gone on to say that the photography doesn't create that same confrontation. You know, it was a, a funny realization as well when I was a young mother and embedded in the scientific world. And I had these young children. And so my girlfriends back where I lived, you know, were other housewives just like me. And when I tried to talk to them about the work that I was doing, I could literally see the moment when their eyes glazed over and they just, you know, they didn't want me to talk about this. They didn't have a background to understand what I was saying. So therefore, I was making them feel stupid and, you know, unintelligent. And I mean, science is confronting in that way. You know, we are an elitist group that talks at a very high level to other people who understand what we're saying. But the rest of the world, they're not competent to participate and they reject it because they don't want to feel stupid. Nobody does. So I thought, you know, if we could find a way to just throw bait out there and bring somebody into the conversation with a more human narrative, I'll show you a photograph and you will ask me, was I scared? Was I cold? How many days was I? I mean, that is a human conversation. And that is the first step. 
if I can get you to ask me a question, now we're talking. Yeah, because the science can be elitist um, and a little bit self-gratifying in a way. And then what you're saying is the photography lowers that ease of entry. So then here's something interesting. What you were saying about before, you know, picture of a hummingbird versus conservation photography. And I think you've already said that the answer is yes, but should conservation photography be also confrontational? Meaning like, okay, it's not scientific jargon that's unintelligible, but should it be these pretty pictures showing the majesty of nature or can conservation and should conservation photography run a whole gamut of potentially emotionally distressing content? I have given this so much thought and thanks to social media, especially in the early days when we were not so regulated by algorithms, you could really see the reaction of people. And I remember listening to, it was a TED talk that explained the psychology behind Martin Luther King's famous speech, because he didn't start the speech by saying, I have a nightmare. <laughs> he told us what the dream was and articulating that positive, hopeful, beautiful vision of what can be is such an important first step. So in my photography, I really strive to remind us that planet Earth is beautiful. It's magical. It has everything we need to be happy and survive. And yet, as Martin Luther King reminded us, we're in the shits today. You know, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> And this is what it actually looks like. And every once in a while, I will pepper my social media with an incredibly gut-wrenching image of whatever it is that's been killed or tortured in nature. And I will get such a massive reaction from people, Alexa. When we published that image of the starving polar bear a few years ago, it was seen by two and a half billion people. And I was getting comments and emails, people saying, this is too depressing, or thank you so much for saying this, or this has really wakened me up, or you are an asshole for talking about climate change. You know, the whole gamut, but it is a human conversation. And then you have to say, it's not over, there is hope, and here's what we have to look forward to. So it's like a narrative, you know, ebb and flow. Have you found that with all your followers, there's an openness to receiving the beauty, but more of a kickback when you do post images like that? You'd be so surprised to learn that most of my followers are women, that a lot of them are mothers <laughs> and young women with all these anxieties and the same helplessness that we feel because we still live in a patriarchy. And they love hearing these positive narratives. They love hearing the encouragement that can be, you know, shared with other communities. They love participating and helping. And they are broken when I share images of the whaling or the hunting or whatever. And every once in a while, I'll get somebody that says, you know, I was not ready for that. I'm unfollowing. <laughs> and I am very honest in saying, I'm not the first photographer to show the horrors of what's happening. Susan Sontag in the 1970s was writing about the courage it takes to see the pain of others, the importance mm. of photographers in the front lines to prevent us from numbing ourselves to the horrors of war. Well, the war on biodiversity is no different. Somebody needs to be in the front lines to remind us of what's being lost. And if we don't have the courage to look it in the eye, then we cannot solve it. Gosh, I think, Christina, you find yourself in such a challenging position, actually, and I think about this a lot in terms, I was actually writing this to a friend this morning, the problems of expectations, you know, and in a way, 
when we build up expectations about something, we can mostly be disappointed because things will either never match up or not properly match up. And I've been thinking a lot about expectation in the context of our social and ecological crisis. And on one hand, if we expect that, you know, the world is burning and things are going to hell and people are going to move, that can lead us into what you've just described as sort of like, God, I'm just checking out. I don't know what to do or the overwhelm. Mm -hmm. And so if we expect the worst, it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy where the worst may happen. And that doesn't leave space. You know, Susan Sontag wrote about it, I think, as Rebecca Solent and others. It doesn't leave the space for whatever magical, mysterious, incredible, powerful community resilience and acts may come through. But if we don't tell the truth of the moment, even if it builds expectations of despair, then we're also lying because we will probably shoot past 1.5. We will shoot past 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. And what we need to prepare humans for that world is fundamentally different from the status quo of what we're preparing people for today. And so that balance between being the naysayer, doomsayer, but also telling it as it is and infusing hope is so tricky. And, and I guess you've been doing this for long enough that I'm wondering with you and, and the other photographers you work with and the other communities you work with when you tell their stories with Sea Legacy, has your way of addressing that changed? Is it a different strategy today than it used to be? God, that's another amazing question. <laughs> You've got to yeah, stop saying no, that. <laughs> I am, I am uh, deeply concerned by the lack of general awareness. You know, when I am running through the airport or I go to the grocery store and I look around and I see this mass of unaware population, they have no idea what's coming. The people like us who are close to the subject, we know how scary it is, how close we are to this being irreversible. And so I think a couple of things. A general education on the workings of our planet is something I try to do every day. Just to remind people, I mean, do you know about the carbon cycle? If you don't, you know, this is roughly how it works in super simple terms. People know nothing about how it works. It's remarkable to me. So using my platform as an opportunity to educate. And I like to think about planet Earth as this amazing spaceship traveling through the universe, carrying everything that has ever existed, everything that's precious to us, everything that will ever be is right here, right now. And we don't know how to operate it. We, there's no pilot and we don't know how it works. And we have compromised the systems to such a degree that the whole ship may come crashing down. So it's, um, it's a delicate balance trying to encourage people to participate more and learn more without being terrified and becoming non-monopathetic. It's a dance every day. And sometimes I find myself holding back. The, you know, the more time goes by, the more I want to scream and wake up and have bold, unpopular opinions. And you can't. You have to moderate. Do you? Maybe you. Maybe that's your role. I'm a big advocate that political systems shift when they really, really see that there's resistance. And a few episodes ago, two episodes ago, we had Britt Ray come on and we were talking about climate grief and anxiety. And something that we're seeing and that I would love to see more of are these public displays of grief for the species that we're losing. And it was like, you know, we had the AIDS epidemic, she writes in her book. We didn't just let it happen and just like silent deaths. There were like people in the street and public mourning and these sorts of public grieving rituals, which become an act of activism. Mm -hmm. And I actually believe that the only 
loving and respectful thing to do for the death of all of these species and other forms of life is is potentially, you know, as, as Christiane Figueres says, optimism and outrage, but also the outrage. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't think that has to take away from the beauty of what's currently here. But I think if we don't pass through that outrage and encourage people to know what's happening, it is a form of deceit. You know, and I love this quote that you said in, in one of the articles I was reading about you when you said, you know, I've had many challenges from being a woman. You just spoke to that right in this conference, from being a Mexican. But the biggest challenge that you face in your career is the resistance of the media and the public to actually talk about the issues relating to the health of our planet. And you said, it's just like everyone wants to talk about pretty pictures whilst our planet is dying. And so, yeah, I just, I love that quote because (laughs) you're rolling your eyes because it's like, yeah, that's also so true. It's my favorite question by a, by any interviewer, <laughs> Alexa, when the interviewer says to me, so Christina, why do you care so much about nature? <laughs> Are you joking? Anyway, your question, sorry. Yeah, but actually, that's really sad if someone has to ask you that question. But also they're asking you to help them understand why they should care because maybe they haven't had their own onboarding experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, back to theory of change, I'll ask my other question after this took me in a different direction. In your theory of change, is there an important piece of giving people direct experiences so that they don't have to ask that question because it's already inside of them? Or is that unrealistic because the world is, you know, livable zones are shrinking and not everyone's going to be able to swim with the right whales in the Australian waters. How do we create a world where that question doesn't have to be asked? Um, The first part of the answer is, I believe that every child on this planet is born with an intense love and curiosity about nature and wildlife. And that is something that is beaten out of children by the fear of adults, teachers, parents. So I implore anybody with children to just let kids be curious about the natural world. You know, it's okay to get dirty. It doesn't matter. The second part of the answer is we have to find ways of making participation inclusive. And by that, I mean, we really have to lower the price of entry. It has to be an invitation for everybody to feel welcome into this, not just the smart, the rich, the educated, the privileged, you know, it's so difficult to ask somebody who can barely put food on the table to participate. But if we are on a ship that's sinking, do we really want just a portion of the population rowing or do we want everybody to feel a stake in saving us? So I don't know how we change the systems, the the power structures, the economic structures to make it more inclusive. But I do know this, Alexa, and I know it with certainty. It takes public support and public opposition. If people are not willing to participate and raise their voice at the dinner table, at the protest, at the political meeting, then it's not going to happen. And the first step for that is to infuse yourself with that courage to speak up, to be unpopular, to to not, you know, cater to what your neighbor's opinion might be. You know, we just have to have a little more courage. And that's why I like to envision myself wearing this invisible superhero suit. When I'm wearing it, I'm capable of saying anything, (laughs) anything that needs to be said. And that courage can be driven a bit by fear and anger. But I find in my own experience, which is all I can really speak to, is that it's been a lot more efficacious and 
non-scary when it's been driven by love and by care. And I know that's super cheesy, but if I have to say something that's unpopular, I hold my love of what I'm speaking for inside of me as I speak it, knowing that maybe I'll rub people the wrong way. I think anger and confrontation are never good. You have to always come at these conversations with genuine curiosity and love and care. And to ask somebody why, you know, why do you feel this way? <laughs> why do you hold this dear? Whatever their position is, you know, so the people who hunt, the people who eat meat, you know, whatever it is, how do we make it more openly inclusive? And it's such a difficult conversation. Yeah. And that brings me, I think, to the question of impact and campaigns. And you've led so many. I, I was reading somewhere, you know, it said, the impact of a body of photography can be hard to quantify. Success looks different for every project. A viral image is one achievement. Using that image to get the public to respond with signatures or monetary contributions, etc., is another. So I'd love to ask you whether you've seen a pattern in your biggest achievements or things that you're proud of, let's say, you know, moments where your media really tipped the scales. Was there something either in how you were being as you took those pictures and as you were in the field or something about the quality of the media or the campaign itself? I think um, for campaigns to be successful, I have found that the key ingredient is humility. I try to come in with such open curiosity and humility to learn, to listen, to ask questions and to do not what I think needs to be done, but what I can see the people are asking. And, and then to infuse that with the imagery, right? And create the openness, the inclusiveness for people to feel comfortable participating and speaking up. I have found that speaking on behalf of something hopeful and beautiful is so much more powerful than speaking against something horrible. So changing the narrative to conversations that people can actually feel you know, how can you argue <laughs> with protecting this beautiful forest? Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. But to answer your question, oftentimes when I'm shooting, and, and this is a solitary activity, you know, I'm mostly underwater or in remote communities talking in my own head. I kind of know when I got an image that is going to encapsulate the spirit of what we're trying to save and do and portray. And when those images come about and they're few and far between, they become iconic symbols for something bigger. And I have to remove my ego from it because you surrender those images to the campaigns and to the cause. And it gives me such immense pleasure to do that. Oh, that's so, that, I mean, you said humility, but that really is humility. It's almost making yourself invisible and being a channel for the image that wants to, or the story that wants to be told. And you're just making yourself available to be that almost egoless creature in the middle <laughs> of this voice and this recipient. Yeah, I oftentimes think of myself as this semi-permeable membrane and there's a conversation happening through me between this thing that I'm photographing and the person who's looking at it. And the story is not about me, it comes through me. And it, all I can do is facilitate. Is there one or two particular campaigns that you could describe or images that exemplify what you think was an amazing win or success or tipping point in your work? Yeah, I mean, th there's a couple of examples. I have been, you know, working with Conservation International for many years in one capacity or another. And I remember 
20, 25 years ago when we, when scientists really, not me, started talking about the idea of creating interconnected marine protected areas. These places where you don't have a place that's protected and the fishing industry waiting just outside for migrating species. But how do we create these swimways, these corridors? And it took a long time to build the public support, the political will, the financial support to eventually make it all happen. And I was so honored and so pleased when it was the government of Panama that asked Sea Legacy to come in first to help them celebrate the achievement of getting to 30% protection of their coastal waters before, way before 20 by 30. And then eventually they got to 54%. But that really triggered Costa Rica to come in almost immediately and say, you know what, wait a minute, <laughs> we are the green country. We need to get to 30% too. And then Colombia and then Ecuador. And using our photography, the presence of these you know, National Geographic celebrities that attend these dinners and these meetings and these events to catalyze the conversations and facilitate the creation of the first interconnected marine protected area. Mm. Conservation is always a marathon. You know, it takes years to achieve success. And when we finally stand on the podium to acknowledge the success, it's never a single person or a single organization. There's thousands of people that have contributed. And I'm just proud of my little piece, which oftentimes is to create the image that represents the effort <laughs> and an image that everybody can look at and say, look at what we did. That's really beautiful, Christina. You're making me think of this term that you used earlier uh, in our previous conversation on ocean diplomacy. And when we were speaking before, I noted down a question, which was, uh, you, know, you mentioned narratives, right? And, and diplomacy in a way, it, it's just a big narrative. Where have you found narratives, either ones you've worked on or your peers or your colleagues, where do you find that maybe narratives might contradict or be counterproductive to each other? I've witnessed this a bit in the climate biodiversity space where we seem to think that they're two different things. But mm -hmm. when it comes to the oceans or the marine protected areas, where have you found that the diplomacy is failing because the narratives are not aligned or counterproductive, even if maybe we're actually working towards a similar goal here? I mean, the reason I chose to focus on ocean is because I could see that, and I have been just like you, you know, for many, many years in the biodiversity climate space, ocean was being ignored. You read, you know, the IPCC uh, report and it's barely mentioned. It's like a little side note. And yet it's the largest and the most important, the ecosystem on planet Earth, if we are indeed a spaceship and you open the hood, you know, ocean is the, <laughs> is the engine that drives life on this planet. And we know nothing about it. We know so little. It's been ignored and neglected. We've used it as a dumpster and we've extracted industrially to the point of collapse. And so the diplomacy is many, many fold, but first and foremost is to keep ocean front and center keep reminding politicians, policymakers, conservation groups, indigenous groups, I mean, everybody, that we cannot leave the ocean as an afterthought. So I do that, Sea Legacy does that just by brute force of repetition. <laughs> just mm -hmm. <laughs> keep bringing the ocean and the message. And then the second part of the ocean diplomacy is the opportunity, especially for myself, you know, I the National Geographic title really infuses you with a quasi-celebrity status. And I get invited to be the keynote speaker. 
people want to hear what it's like to swim with a right whale. But what I really do when I grab that microphone is I align the narrative. Oftentimes, when I go to these conferences, I like speaking at the Mm. beginning where I can clearly articulate and summarize what the outcome should be so that we can all go into these congress and conference with a common vision of what is it that we're trying to achieve. Because otherwise we're humans, you know, and everybody has their own personal agenda, their petty, you know, desires. (laughs) It's easy to lose track. I was thinking about this yesterday and the best photographers are not the ones that have the best camera or the biggest skills. Best photographers are the ones that are willing to conquer boredom, discomfort, and fatigue. You have to be the first one up and the last one to leave at night. Mm. And negotiations around biodiversity and climate are no different. He who stays at the end gets the final word on that document. And so we need to infuse ourselves with that determination to be there till the end. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) And also, I mean, a bit cynically, the forces, the entropic forces, let's just call them that, the extractive forces will be there at the end, maybe when everyone else has gone home. And so I think we also remain vigilant because, you know, I don't want to call it a battle because I don't want to use Mm -hmm. warlike language, but these are ongoing challenges that involve very, very profound mindset shifts. What do you think is one of the most, thinking about the way that you've seen stories being told about the ocean, again, you or your partners, what do you think is one of the counterproductive maybe myths or narratives that we currently have about the ocean that you'd like to rectify? There's a couple that are massive. One, of course, that it's so big that it must be indestructible. And yet now we know differently. It's actually incredibly fragile. (laughs) The second one is that conserving the ocean is cheap. It's not. We know, and this is something I've been meaning to talk to you, Because I'm more interested in building new structures than in destroying old ones. You know, I want to replace bad ideas and bad practices with better ideas and better practices. I'm building the toolkit that's necessary to build blue economies that replace industrial exploitation with actually thoughtful and careful growth. You know, this is a place where we can actually invite investors to help us grow the types of economies that that we want to see. But the ocean today requires, uh, and this is the United Nations saying, an investment of $174 billion a year to realize the dream of SDG 14, which is a sustainable development goal that deals with the ocean. You know what the investment level is today for the ocean? $25 billion. So we have a gap of $150 billion in philanthropy, government infusions, investments, So it is devastating, but I see it as an incredible opportunity for us to channel the right investments to keep the ocean alive. Yeah. And the idea that nature can't be healthy nature, I'm actually going to contradict myself, can't be profitable. I think it can be profitable totally in a different way than how we've understood profit in the past, though. I'm going to pull up something you had on the Sea Legacy website, I believe it was, of your nonprofit organization this sort of seven-part framework of what people can do on behalf of the oceans. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to ask a question. And for listeners, I'm going to put this in the show notes, a link to this framework. For one of them, it's just protect more of the ocean, make more marine protected areas, etc. Two, protect more species, similar but slightly different. Three, restore the degraded habitats. 
for reduce the pollution. I'm thinking obviously chemical runoffs, um, you know, things from car tires, uh, plastics, etc. Another one is source food wisely. So like actually let's pay attention to where our food comes from, from the ocean. And the last one, which is the one that we've just been talking, well, the, the recast the sea as a natural solution to climate change. Obviously the sea is the beating heart and pump of the entire earth body. And then you're, you have a unique seventh one, which is achieving ocean equity and justice for local communities. Each of these we could spend a whole podcast episode talking about. So I might encourage you to send over some links after then I can have people look into how they can get involved. But on the seventh one, which was you're calling it Sea Legacy's Unique Wedge, achieve justice for coastal communities. I think this is where you're speaking about the economic imperatives that people live under and the kind of blue economy. And in my experience, a, a big issue with putting in a marine protected area or protecting species is the local livelihoods that say the marine protected area will cut off our source of livelihoods. And so when you look at ocean economies and these new mechanisms, as you say, are there any examples you'd point to from your partners around the world or places where they're starting to really get it right? Yeah, there's a narrative that's often perpetuated by industry that says that if you protect that you're somehow excluding people from fulfilling their livelihoods. Think about this for a second. I think there's a misconception when we talk about fishermen, right? We all imagine the noble guy on his boat going out at sunset. There's a big <laughs> difference between an industrial fishing boat that can stay at sea for months with refrigeration and factory abilities to can. I mean, they're just like these massive cities at sea, extracting and exploiting at an industrial scale. And the small scale fishermen, you know, coming out in his little panga out of Baja. <laughs> Massive <laughs> difference. A single industrial fishing boat can extract in a single night what the entire artisanal fishing body of the entire Baja California sur can extract in a year. Wow. These massive ships are an incredible threat to humanity. And yet, you know, they're conflated with the artisanal fishing. So to give you an example that I hopefully answer your question, a few years ago, Tommy Remegensau, who was the president of Palau, courageously declared 80% of his exclusive economic zone as a marine sanctuary. And he gave the right to utilize that sanctuary only to the artisanal fishermen of his country, while at the same time keeping the Chinese, the Japanese, the Taiwanese fishing fleet out. And it has been successful, except that the pressure they're getting to reopen this amazing sanctuary because it's full of tuna, you know, to these fishing industrial superpowers is massive. So we are in a race to understand and enact ways to, you said the word profit earlier, but I think it's the wrong word, you know, to give value to these natural resources, their blue natural capital value, so they can be entered into the PNL of a country. Today, Alexa, there's not a single country on earth that has an asset listed. Like we have 10 whales. Each whale is, you know, worth $3 million in decarbonization services. There's not a single country. So I think we need to start with one or two examples and then demonstrate that there's actually a lot of money to be made by doing the right thing. Oh my gosh, Christina, I think you're opening the Pandora's box. <laughs> I knew I was going to find a a mirror mind. Oh my gosh. Considering we have 10 minutes left, but suffice to say that you and I had a brief 
LinkedIn exchange some months ago, right? About the monetization of nature. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. I think that we have to do it. And it. We need to be realistic and get nature on the balance sheet. But if we don't combine that with the wonder and the mystery and the awe that you convey with your imagery and with real embodied and caring experiences, I am a little bit concerned about psychologically what that will do to us as a human species. You know, Alex, I read your article and it really touched me at such a deep level that I've been actually quoting it. <laughs> Um, because it greatly clarified for me these moral, this moral dilemma. In an ideal world, we would never have to put a monetary value on things, but we know that things that have no value cannot be insured. You know, they are easy to dispose of because who cares if you kill a whale? You know, it has no impact on anybody. You cannot find the person who damaged it. You cannot insure it. So saying, you know, I think, you know, we got it all wrong so many years ago. And if we can use our last couple of minutes to say the entirety of nature that remains should be protected 100%. And those who wish to exploit it, they are the ones that need to have a conference and they need to travel to the end of the world to make the case for why they need to go and exploit it. And the rest of us, you know, <laughs> we will judge and we will make them do environmental essays. You know, we have it completely backwards. And this is part of our patriarchal heritage. You know, the handful that have made a living by destroying and wholesale. You know, I know you know what I'm saying. It needs to change. I do. I do. I do. And uh, if they're all somewhere (laughs) going to their final conference. I think that we should be there and just shower them with positivity and maybe that'll do a change. Or we put some, I don't know, LSD into their (laughs) drinking water or something. That would be another approach. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I don't want to be angry doing this work. I don't want to be hurt doing this work. I want to be empowered and joyful and infused with positivity and hope. And, you know, I want to fill my spirit with good work. So I don't want to be angry at these people and we need to find a different way. I'm absolutely with you. And I think that we can't see individuals, you know, everyone is a reflection of a system, even some of the craziest, you know, worst politicians at the helm of our nations today. They exemplify a deep unease that lies inside of all of us, a potential that lies inside of all of us that we just watered and nurtured differently. This brings me to some of the last parts of our conversation. What allows me to show up fully and with joy and with an open heart is the people I get to speak to every day that are doing incredible things. Like there are so many. And in the last minutes, you started obviously Sea Legacy with your partner, Paul, trying to harness storytelling and narrative and all of that creative talent that's out there to build a case and to move, you know, hearts and souls globally. Maybe you could speak a little bit about the ways that people listening to this podcast and or how anyone can interface with these organizations and be involved and infuse themselves with, I think, the same hope and community that drives us. Because without that, we'll go into that checking out that we described earlier in the call. Yeah, I have endeavored my entire life and my entire career to build communities around common vision. And finding that tribe of people that can travel with you through the journey of infusing others, because that's all it is, inviting more and more and more different communities to the conversation. That has been the mission of my life. And so I've done that with photographers. I've done that with surfers, with sailors, with musicians lately, you know, just like making it 
possible for people to be part of the joy that it is to save the ocean. But I also created something amazing recently called 100 for the Ocean. It was just a plea of photographers asking me, they want to help and people don't know how to interject. So we created a print sale and these photographers donated each two prints. We sold them online. We raised over half a million dollars and we have used that money to empower other organizations, the smaller ones, the ones that are invisible, with communication assets, with amplification, with media exposure. And, you know, these things give me so much joy to be able to have a global conversation with thousands, millions of people and invite them all to be part of a different future. Something I'm, I'm just thinking, Christina, when you were describing Sea Legacy earlier in the call we had before this, you were talking about, um, you and your colleague Jack actually were talking about that part of your strategy is working with all of these partners on the ground. So lots of small organizations that are doing incredible work that just don't have the time or the training to do the sort of snazzy, you know, media strategy that, that we tend to see out there. And so part of what you do with Sea Legacy is you come in and you give them the toolkits and you help, you know, you give them a platform to tell their stories. I wonder if, you know, there are so many people out there now who are waking up to the predicament that we're in and they're wanting to change careers or they want to contribute some of their time pro bono. And they could be, you know, um, strategy consultants or chefs or designers. Is there a way for sort of like asks and requests and offers platform where people who have skills to give to the ecological climate or ocean movement could say like, hey, I'm a designer and I'm willing to give three hours a week pro bono to help this NGO design their logo or whatever it may be. Is there anything like that where people can offer their skills and their time beyond the photographers, which you've already spoken about? Yes, the answer is yes. There is an organization called uh, Key Conservation, <laughs> and this is exactly what they do. They take people who are willing to volunteer whatever skill set and time they have to the many thousands of organizations out there in the front lines trying to make a difference. It's not just ocean, it's Africa, it's elephants, it's, you know, it's everything. So key conservation, the last time I looked, they, they're growing and they're doing an amazing job. You know, lawyers, nurses, designers, everybody has something to contribute. Amazing, amazing. Okay, I'm absolutely going to link that in the show notes along with, with your other organizations. Christina, one last question before we log off. I don't think I've asked this to other guests, but when I was reading some of your interviews, I felt like I wanted to ask it. If there was some kind of understanding psychological, spiritual, whatever it may be, but less intellectual, I think more of the heart, that you'd love all humans instantly to know or feel, what would it be? I really love this vision of us traveling on planet Earth along with all our fellow passengers, the incredible creatures that make life possible on this planet. <laughs> My wish would be if I had a magic wand, you know, for all of us to get reconnected with that amazing network of fellow passengers on planet Earth. Yes, we're just a small part of all of these other beings. And of course, the indigenous knowledge. I have had the privilege of spending so much time with remote and indigenous communities, and they are the last people who are still connected to the operating system on planet Earth. They know how to thread on planet Earth with a lighter footprint. And we need to stop being arrogant and dismissing them because they're primitive, you know, 
we need to lean on their knowledge and their spirituality to help heal the planet. 100%. And I, I must say that actually I, I really see that changing, like in a very positive sense. This is probably over the last years that it hasn't just become, you know, perfunctionary or it's not just a show. I think that we are acknowledging that in a lot of the the global gatherings and the conferences and the work that I've been involved in. So absolutely. Christina, thank you so much for your time. I want to die with you, dive with you, not die with oh, you, Jesus. No, I want to die with you, <laughs> with the whales, with the whales and come on one of your incredible expeditions that I know that you guys run. So it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're always welcome, Alexa. Thank you so much for having me, for letting me share some of this thoughts and ideas. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. That was Christina Mitty Mittemeyer speaking to us about conservation photography, the resplendence and beauty of the oceans, and some ways that we can all very actively and proactively take action today to get involved. As always, her references are in the show notes. I highly recommend for you to check out the Sea Legacy website, as well as all the other links, which in a certain way, hopefully, enable the storytellers out there who are listening, the artists or the photographers, and just concerned citizens to start to dig in and understand this vast realm of the ocean, which covers 70% of the Earth's surface, and yet often is out of sight and out of mind. I was so honored and delighted to speak with Christina and hope to join one of her expeditions soon. Maybe that'll be a Life World special, Life from the Deck. We have a bonus episode coming out in a few weeks for this holiday season that is about the sounds of the waters, and I highly recommend you to look for it. It is an absolute balm and treat and beautiful bonus. So it's a watery month in December. I hope you all have wonderful holidays and Christmases with your loved ones, and I'll be back next year. Be so well. It is always incredibly heartwarming to hear from you and receive everyone's messages. And I am inspired by many of the things that the listeners are also doing. Thank you so much. <laughs>